Good evening. Good to see everybody here tonight. Uh, this is my first time to come to Somerset. We have, uh, my family and I have lived in, in uh, E-Town for uh, almost 11 years now. It will be at the end of next month. And as Josh said, we've been working with the College View congregation there. I've had the opportunity since we've lived in Kentucky to uh, speak to several congregations, but mostly in central Kentucky, in Bowling Green, uh, Louisville, maybe over to Lexington, that area. But it certainly is good for uh, me and my family to be here with you tonight and to share in this VBS this week. Uh, my wife, Anna, is, is here uh, with me, and we have three children, uh, Abigail, Elijah, and Joshua, nine, seven, and Joshua just turned four today. And so uh, you all know something about guys named Joshua, don't you? <laughs> He's a good, good, uh, good children. God certainly has blessed us in that regard. Um, so happy that I can participate in, in this week of, of Bible studies, and I hope that our time spent together in God's Word tonight will be profitable and beneficial to all of us. If you have your Bible, I would invite you to open there to First Kings chapter eighteen. First Kings chapter eighteen, and we are continuing as. Uh, this series is this week about mountaintop encounters with God. I understand uh, Brother Mike Estes spoke to you last night about uh, some things concerning uh, Mount Sinai. And I didn't have the opportunity to listen to his lesson, but I'm sure that he had some, some great things to say there. We're going to be looking this evening at, a, at the prophet Elijah at Mount Carmel. In one of the darkest hours, I believe, of Israel's spiritual history we find that God raised up one of His greatest prophets to show some of His most magnificent demonstrations of power. And that prophet, of course, as we're going to be talking about this evening, is Elijah. I don't know that, that Elijah is the greatest prophet of the Old Testament or not, but he is among the greatest. You might remember in the Gospel accounts when Jesus was talking to His apostles and asking them, who do the people say that I am, that some of the answers that they gave were was He was... Uh, Jesus was Elijah, or he was Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. If you had to rank the prophets, I, I would say that you'd probably put Elijah at least into the top five, maybe into the top three. We know a lot about Elijah. We know a lot about the great miracles that he did and the great teaching that he performed. But God chose him during this time when Israel desperately needed to see, I think, some demonstrations of God's power to bring them back to him. And so tonight we're going to consider Elijah's challenge to the prophets of Jezebel, the false prophets here on Mount Carmel. And as we do that, we're going to hopefully see God's power on display there. I really want to begin this evening, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time in chapter 18 here in 1 Kings. Uh, 1 Kings. But I want to begin with, with a little bit of a biblical introduction to Elijah back in chapter 17 and in verse 1. So let's just read that verse together. First Kings 17 and verse 1. The Bible says to us there, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who is of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Although as I just mentioned, Elijah was a great, a great prophet, a mighty prophet of God. Elijah just kind of burst onto the biblical scene without really any fanfare, and with very little introduction. We might think, you know, 
if he's going to be talked about for quite a few chapters here in the book of Kings, and he's even going to be referenced several times in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit would decide to give us a little bit more information about who Elijah is, to give us some information about his background, but there's not much information at all. All the text tells us is what we just read there in verse 1, that he was Elijah the Tishbite. He was probably, that means he was from a little town or city of Tishbe, of the settlers of Gilead. If you look on a Bible map, you might find there the region of Gilead uh, over east of the Jordan. I don't know that that's the exact place that he was from, but I think that's a reasonable guess. While we don't know who his family was, we don't know what his occupation was, we don't know what his home life was growing up or any of those kinds of things, we do know that God spoke his message to Elijah. And that as we're going to think about this evening, Elijah spoke God's message to a very wicked king of Israel, Ahab. And the message that Elijah spoke to this king was a very bleak message. It was a very blunt message, as we just read here in chapter 17 and verse 1. Basically, Elijah says to Ahab, Jehovah is Israel's God. And Jehovah is the God that I serve. And Jehovah has declared that there is going to be a drought. There is going to come a famine on the whole land of Israel. And it will continue until I say otherwise. Ahab, being the king of Israel, might have been thinking to himself, you're telling me what? (laughs) Until you say otherwise that there's going to be a drought in the land? I want you to kind of think for just a moment about really what I think is the underlying message of Elijah's words here. That Elijah was saying in effect to this wicked king that Jehovah, not Baal, is Israel's true God. And that's going to be important when we come to chapter 18, won't it? And he was saying to this wicked king Ahab that Jehovah, not Baal, he is the God that is real. He is the God that is alive. He is the God that is active amongst his people. And I believe Elijah perhaps was saying, as he was telling Ahab that there's not going to be dew or rain these years, he might have been saying that, yes, this is going to be a physical drought that will come on the land of Israel, But surely in God bringing that physical drought upon His people, surely He was wanting them to think about what it was really pointing to. I believe it was more symbolizing and pointing to the spiritual drought that God's people were experiencing at this time. It was a very dark time, spiritually speaking, in the history of Israel. And so if we can just picture the scene in our mind for a moment... Here he is, Elijah, he's an unknown man, probably from the east of the Jordan River. In all likelihood, he is in Samaria, the capital city of Israel. Maybe he is in the king's palace. And he's here to tell this very arrogant, evil king that unless and until I say so, there's not going to be any dew, there's not going to be any rain on the land. So though the Bible's introduction to Elijah is very brief, It says, I think, much about the character of Elijah. It tells us something that we need to know as we come into chapter 18 of who Elijah is. That Elijah is a man of deep trust, of deep confidence in the Lord. He is a man of unwavering courage to speak the word of the Lord to anyone. (laughs) And he's speaking that word to the king of Israel at this point. Then we come into chapter 18, and we're not going to look at everything that is said there. 
But I want us to think for just a minute. This kind of began laying the groundwork for really the the um, bulk of our lesson or our study this evening. I want us to think for just a few minutes about Elijah's relationship with King Ahab. So let's read here a few verses from chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. The writer says to us, Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Drop down to verse 17, and let's read three verses here. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now then send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So from the time that we just read there in chapter 17 and verse 1 till chapter 18 and verse 1, the writer tells us there at that opening verse of chapter 18 that there has been three years, I think it's really over three years. Uh, we'll look at this passage a little bit later uh, on in, in the lesson this evening, but James chapter 5 and verse 17 tells us that Elijah prayed and, and there was not rain for three and a half years. And so it seems like it's kind of toward the end of that time. But here you have over three years passing since that drought began in the nation of Israel. And that drought has brought about a severe famine, as you can imagine, in Samaria. That is the capital city of Israel. That is where Ahab and Jezebel reside. And so it has not just affected uh, the common people of Israel. It's not just affected those who are living out in the countryside. It has now affected even the king and his palace and all of his attendants as well. You know, it, I don't know how, how the uh, the weather has been here in Somerset over the last year or so, but in E-Town, uh, up until about maybe six or eight weeks ago, we had had the, the wettest uh, year on record so far. <laughs> but now the, the ground is almost parched. The grass is turning brown. You know, it's we're not in a not even in a drought yet, as far as I know, much less a famine. But can you imagine for over three years that there is no rain? There's not even dew on the land. God is sending a message to his people, sending a message, I think, especially to Ahab and Jezebel. Over three years have passed also since Elijah had seen or spoken to Ahab. We don't have any record of him coming into the presence of the king between chapter 17 and verse 1, chapter 18 and verse 1. But now that three over three years has passed and God speaks to Elijah and he tells Elijah, this is what I want you to do. I have some work for you to do. I want you to go and show yourself to King Ahab. Think about the conversation he had had over three years prior. Chapter 17 and verse 1. If it were me, I probably would have said to God, you want me to do what? <laughs> you want me to go see who? But not Elijah. Elijah, we find, because he was the man that he was, he obeyed without question. He obeyed without hesitation. If he had any questions, that's not recorded for us in the text. If there was any hesitation on his part to go and do God's will, it's not recorded for us. This man was all about doing God's will. Again, he was a man of deep confidence in God. He was a man who had courage to speak the word of God to anyone. And he was going to go speak to Ahab. 
In the intervening verses here, verses 3 through 16 of chapter 18 that we're not going to read, you might remember how he ran into Obadiah, uh, who was a faithful servant of the Lord, that he had hidden a hundred prophets of the Lord when Jezebel had really put a bounty on their head. He had fed them and cared for them while they were in the cave. And so he kind of arranges uh, this meeting between Ahab and Elijah. And so we come to verse 17 of chapter 18. When, when Ahab saw Elijah, the Bible tells us there at that verse that he falsely accused this prophet of being the source of Israel's trouble. Again, three plus years have passed. <laughs> I wonder, maybe that conversation was still kind of fresh in Ahab's mind that he remembered this prophet said to him, there's not going to be any dew, not going to be any rain until I say that there will be dew or rain. And so he just, right off the bat, his first words out of his mouth are, you're the reason, you're the source for all of our trouble these past three years. But Elijah responds there at verse 18, by accurately accusing Ahab of being the source, he says, I'm not the source of your trouble. He says, you, you not I are the troublemaker, for you have forsaken God, and you have followed idols. If you want to look to... Why you have been in a drought and a famine for three years, you need to look to yourself. Don't point the finger at me. You need to point the finger at you. I think many of us, if we're good students of the Bible, we probably remember what kind of of man Ahab was, what his character was like. But let's just look back for just a few minutes this evening at that. Back to chapter 16 at verse 29. Uh, The writer tells us here, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal, for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. We can read another short description about him. I think it's over in chapter 22, but we're not going to take the time to do that. It basically says what we're reading here in chapter 16. That, that Ahab was the most wicked king of Israel And that's saying a lot because of what his father had done. Because there were a lot of wicked kings in the northern kingdom. But to this point, Ahab was the most wicked king. He did more evil than all of those kings before him. He did more, again, verse 33, to provoke God than all of the kings who went before him. That tells us all we need to know about Ahab's character. And so for Elijah to come here at chapter 18 and verses 18, verse 18 and say, no, you're the reason why Israel is experiencing what they are. We really find that Elijah's words, they were right on target. target. Ahab was the one that was responsible because he and his wife and all of their false religion and idolatry was why Israel was experiencing the things that they were. So verse 19, Elijah didn't just say, you're the source of the problem, but Elijah issued this challenge to Ahab. He told this wicked king to gather Israel as well as all of Jezebel's false prophets to Mount Carmel. And again, can, you know, it's easy for us to just read these words because I, 
especially if we grew up in a home where we had parents who were Christians, if they taught us the Bible, if they taught us the stories of the Bible, if we learned those in Bible class, you know, we, we can just think, oh, sure, I know that information. But to try to put yourself in the shoes of Elijah and even of Ahab and to get a, a picture in your mind, here again is, at least from Ahab's perspective, I'm sure, and most of Israel's perspective, here is a lowly man of God. Here is a nobody. And he is once again ordering Ahab, the mighty king of Israel, to do something. And the text doesn't say Ahab questioned him about that. In fact, as we're going to read here in just a moment, beginning at verse 20, he did what Elijah told him to do. So we find something else uh, out, uh, again, that confirms the character of Elijah. We see the faith of Elijah, we see the courage, we see the commitment of Elijah on this particular occasion. And then we come to Mount Carmel at chapter 18, beginning at verse 20. And I want us to read there verses 20 through 40. Uh, Don't get too concerned. We're not going to talk about everything that's in every verse. Uh, But just so we all refresh our memories, or perhaps if you uh, don't know this biblical account, that you can uh, come to know it this evening. Beginning at verse 20, the Bible says to us, So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him, but if Baal, follow Him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left, a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that is a good idea. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it First, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood, and cut the ox in pieces, and laid it on the wood, And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. 
At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Uh, Again, as I just mentioned a moment ago from verse 20, the the fact that here is supposed to be the mighty king of Israel, here is the one who is supposed to have all power and all rule and all control throughout the land of Israel, he is following Elijah's orders. And I believe that's very significant because it shows us in this whole scene here at Mount Carmel, from the very beginning, who is in control? That that God is in control. Well, I didn't put that on the PowerPoint. It shows us that God is in control. So from the very beginning to the very end of this section that we read, 20 through 40, it's not Elijah, it's not Ahab rather that's in control, it's not the prophets of Baal that's in control. (laughs) It is God, and of course, working through his prophet Elijah, that is firmly in control of this entire situation. So when Israel and the false prophets are all assembled at Mount Carmel, here the true prophet Elijah speaks. And you might remember, as we just read, he proposed this huge challenge to the people and to the prophets of Baal. To the people, he said they're going back to verse 21. He said, really, the time has come for for you. You who are supposed to be God's people, the time has come for you to to decide. The choice is before you. You can't put it off any longer. Is Jehovah the true God or is Baal? Now, it's kind of interesting to me anyway, at the end of verse 21, the comment of the writer here tells us that the people didn't answer Elijah a word. They were silent. But Elijah continued to speak. And then there at verse 22, for the next few verses, he then issues a challenge to the people, even though they didn't answer his question from verse 21. He's taking this as an opportunity to challenge them and to also challenge the 450 prophets of Baal. And basically what he says to the people and the prophets is this, we're both going to do the same thing. We're both going to get an ox. We're both going to place that ox on the altar. We're going to to, uh, put wood on the altar. We're not going to put a fire under it. And then each of us is going to call out to our respective God. You know, there's not going to be one advantage on one side or the other. And the people, they are still awake. (laughs) They're still listening to Elijah. And they say there at the end of verse 24, that seems good to us. And so the people, as well as the prophets, I don't know how much the prophets willingly accepted this challenge. I don't know if Ahab was maybe kind of pushing them into this. Yes, you're going to do this or not. But nevertheless, the people and the prophets accepted the challenge. And so Baal's prophets went first. And as you continue uh, looking at that, especially beginning at about verse 26, 
It tells us that they made all the preparations. They put the ox on the altar. They didn't put any fire under it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. I don't know exactly what time they began in the morning. But it seems to me that probably for at least three to four hours here are these prophets calling upon Baal. Again, if we can kind of try to get a picture in our mind of of this scene. And as they're calling upon Baal to hear them and to answer their prayer, this going on for three to four hours, that they're leaping wildly, trying to attract his attention. But verse 26 is very telling. When the writer of this section says that there was no voice and no one answered. Three to four hours. Nothing. And so noontime came and about that time the Bible tells us there beginning at verse 27 that, that uh, Elijah began to make fun of them. He, he began to ridicule and to mock their Antics and uh, the false prophets at that particular point, I think, just dug their heels in even more rather than just admitting, okay, we give up. (laughs) Baal really doesn't exist. Baal can't do anything for us. He's not a real God. He's a false God. That they just dug their heels in even more and they began to go crazy. They, They called out to Baal even louder. And they are taking these swords and lances and they are cutting themselves and wounding themselves for what it seems to me another three to four hours from noontime until the time of the sacrifice that would be offered somewhere perhaps in the early evening. But the result was the same. We come to verse 29. The writer tells us here there there was no answer. There was no response. You know, we we think about uh, how, how crazy many people in our country have become. Uh, not just re- religiously, but with all kinds of things. But again, this this is just a wild scene that's going on here. You know, the, these people, we would say, if we were there, I think we would say they have lost their mind. And indeed they had. But then Elijah goes to work after they don't get any results. And it's interesting that as he, as the Bible says there at verse 30, that he said to all the people of Israel who are gathered here, I don't know how many it is, I'm thinking it's a pretty good sized crowd, hundreds, maybe thousands of Israelites have come together here, I, I'm not sure. But he calls all the people to him and says, come near to me. And so all the people came near to him. I think that's significant because it tells us he wasn't trying to pull anything over on these folks. He was doing everything out in the open. You know, everything that he was about to do from this point on, the, the people were looking on. They could clearly see if he tried to do some kind of trickery. But as the people are looking on, he rebuilds the altar of the Lord. It is very possible, knowing, again, the character of Ahab and Jezebel and how entrenched they were in Baal worship and, and idol worship, it's very possible that this, this altar may have been torn down by Ahab and Jezebel, or at least they may have given the orders for it to have been torn down. And now he's coming back, he's rebuilding the altar of the Lord. He digs a large trench around that altar. He places the ox on top of that altar. He soaks that ox with water. He soaks the wood with water. He fills the trench around this altar with water. Uh, At least 12 pitchers full of water in that trench. I don't know exactly how much volume or quantity of water that was, but 
The point is, everything around this altar is, is just soaked in water. The people can readily see that. And then Elijah calls upon Jehovah to send fire from heaven, beginning there at verse 36 and 37. And he wants the, wants the Lord to act on this particular occasion because he wants the people that are observing this scene to know for certain that Jehovah alone is God. It's already been proved almost most of this day that Baal's not any good. Baal is not real. Baal is not alive. Baal is not active. Baal can't do anything for you. But he wants them to know for certain on the other side of that, that Jehovah can. Jehovah is real. He is alive. He can act in your life. And he also wants the people to know that Elijah is his faithful servant. And so it seems to me as you come to verse 38 there, that the text makes a great contrast between what the prophets of Baal did for most of the day and what Elijah did. I don't know how much time it took him to do this. But it seems to me at verse 38 that instantly God answered Elijah's prayer. There wasn't any lag time. It didn't take Elijah calling out for three or four hours at a time and and dancing around wildly to attract the attention of God and, and uh, cutting himself mutilating himself for God to respond. He just very, you know, sometimes I I, I wish, at least from my perspective, that we didn't just have the written word, but I could see some of these things in video. (laughs) Some of these accounts from the Bible, just to hear the inflection, the tone of, of Elijah's voice. But it seems to me here, he's saying and praying this prayer in verse 36 and 37, kind of in a calm way. Again, I think a great contrast between a true prophet of God and these false prophets. And God answered Elijah's prayer instantly. He sent this all-consuming fire that the Bible tells us in the next couple of verses that not only burned up the ox, that would have been impressive enough, I think, but it, it burned up, it consumed the entire altar, that would have been impressive enough, but it didn't stop there, it just licked up all the water. What kind of a fire must this have been? It was a fire that only God could send. And God answered in a powerful way. Needless to say, this awesome display of God's power here at Mount Carmel, it got the people's attention. To the point that we read, as we just did there, at verses 39 and 40, that the people fell on their faces. They're recognizing now, they're saying out loud, confessing that Jehovah is God, and then they do whatever Elijah tells them to do. When he tells them, you seize these false prophets and you kill them. And they did. Mount Carmel, really like these three mountains that you're looking at today, even I think as Josh preached on Sunday morning from the Mount of Transfiguration and other mountaintop encounters with God that we can read throughout scriptures, this one, along with all of those, just is a, an amazing demonstration of God's power. Again, an account maybe we have read many times over in our life, but we still need to be impressed with the fact as we read it, perhaps afresh this evening, what awesome power God has at His disposal, what awesome power God uses from time to time. 
But it also impresses upon me anyway that Elijah's trust in God and the courage that Elijah had once again to do God's will. Here is Elijah, one prophet, verses 450. But he doesn't seem to be scared in the least. Because he knows it's not really just him versus these false prophets. It is him and God. He is on the Lord's side. And now he has successfully convinced Israel to be on the Lord's side, at least for a time. Well, in the time that we have left, I want us to, to think about three lessons that we can learn. What, what, what's the takeaway for us? You know, it's very easy, I think, for us as we read uh, accounts like this in, in the text uh, to know the information and to approach it on an intellectual level. But sometimes for us to think, okay... That, that happened thousands of years ago. <laughs> but, but what about my situation? What, what about my life today? And so I want us to think about three lessons of, of many, many lessons that we can learn just from 1 Kings chapter 18. And these lessons have to do with God's power. Number one, I think we learned here that God displays His power in a diversity of ways. Maybe not just from chapter 18, but... Pairing this text with something, another text here in just a moment. First Kings 18 definitely shows us that God is the most powerful being that exists. There, there is no doubt about uh, that particular point from this text. And I think sometimes it's easy for us as Christians to forget that in the world in which we live. It might have been very easy for Elijah to forget that. Even though he had great trust in, in, in the Lord, even though he was a man of great courage, he could have thought, you know, I'm speaking to the king of Israel here. I'm up against all of these false prophets that have the backing of Jezebel, who was even more wicked than her husband. And for him to just momentarily forget that God is the most powerful being that exists. But he is. God is certainly more powerful than the governor of Kentucky. He is more powerful than the president of the United States. He is more powerful even than the God of this world. As the Bible describes Satan, our arch enemy, several times in the New Testament. And yet God never shows His power, I don't believe, for for prideful reasons. God doesn't show His power for selfish reasons. It's not all about Him. Nor does He always demonstrate His power in a way that just wows us. Yes, sometimes God does show His power like He did as we just read here in 1 Kings 18 at Mount Carmel, sometimes God does show His power in kind of an eye-opening, attention-grabbing sort of way. And you can think about lots of examples of that, especially in the Old Testament. You, just from the book of Exodus, you can go back to the burning bush. And a, a bush that's burning, but it doesn't really burn up. And a voice speaks out of that bush to you. Exodus 3, 1 and 2. The power of God on display there, that's a... An attention-grabbing sort of display of God's power. You can think about the ten plagues over into chapters 4 through 12 in the book of Exodus. How how, uh, interesting, how neat that would have been, not for us to experience those plagues, but for us to have kind of been a fly on the wall there and to have seen all of that in action during the time of Moses and Aaron and Egypt. You can think about God's power and a great display of God's power in parting the Red Sea when you come to Exodus chapter 14. Wouldn't that be a, a thrilling thing for us to see that we could walk across as God 
blew that east wind all night long and, and parted the waters and they could walk across not on muddy ground but on dry ground. And then God collapsing the sea on the mightiest, most powerful army on earth. And then what you talked about last night from Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. About the thunder, the lightning, the smoke, the quaking of the earth, all of those would have definitely grabbed our attention. And sometimes God does show His power in those ways. But I think you only have to go to the next chapter here in the book of Kings, in 1 Kings chapter 19. And you find that there are times, though, when God shows His power in what we could describe as calmer, quieter ways. Like He did to Elijah at this next mountain, Mount Horeb. Look here into chapter 19 as Elijah now is afraid for his life. His courage seemingly has disappeared. And we come to verse 5. As he has gone out into the wilderness and he's just lying under a juniper tree. And he says to the Lord, I'm not better than my fathers. You just take my life. I've done all that I can do. There's nothing more that I can do. There's no reason for me to live. In verse 5 the Bible tells us that Elijah lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, so he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. I don't know if you've ever considered this this account here as being a demonstration of God's power, but I believe it is. It's a lot calmer, it's a lot quieter, it's not as flashy, not as showy, but it's still God's power on display. That God sends in in Elijah's uh, lowest point, perhaps in his entire life, when he is ready to die, God sends an angel to him, Two times and he sends him with food and water. And he ate and drank so much there at verse 8 that he was able to have strength to go for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a pretty powerful demonstration from God. But we come down to verse 11 and you remember that Elijah goes to the cave there at verse 9. And again, he says, you know, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. I've tried to turn Israel around. It just doesn't seem like I've gotten any results. I'm the only one who is faithfully serving you. And so God says, okay, verse 11, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. You know, here here again, the the first part, uh, or or uh, verse 11 and the first part of verse 12, we might think, yeah, that's, that's how God chose His power. Just like there on Mount Carmel, you know, you've got this mighty wind that's strong enough to uh, break rocks apart. You have this earthquake that certainly might probably would have shooken, shaken a lot of those rocks there on that mountain as well. You have this fire that, again, back to Mount Carmel, that could have consumed almost everything that was there. 
But the Bible is very clear that the Lord wasn't in any of those. Then you come to the end of verse 12 and it tells us after the fire, after the earthquake, after the mighty rushing wind, that there was a sound of a gentle breeze. And though that the end of that verse does not specifically state it, I believe it is strongly implied that the Lord was in that gentle breeze. The Lord was showing His power there. What I'm saying to you in all that is that the God at Mount Carmel is the same God at Mount Horeb. He is the all-powerful God. And yet He chose, as you read through the Bible, to display His power in different ways at different times. And I believe the same is true for us today. At times, maybe in our own life, God's power is what we could describe as being very loud. We can see it on display. At least through the eyes of faith, we feel reasonably confident that God is showing Himself at a particular point in our life. And it's very a very mighty display of power. At other times, though, I think God's power is kind of soft. But it's the same power. And so the lesson that we need to learn, at least one lesson that I need to learn and took away from this study, is that however God chooses to show His power, His power is the same. He doesn't go up and down in power. He remains the all-powerful being of the universe. His power is always at work in our lives. His power was at work in the life of Elijah on Mount Carmel. It was at work in his life on Mount Horeb. Do we see his power, though? (laughs) Maybe we see it when it's kind of grand and great. But do we see it when it is somewhat, uh, somewhat calmer and quieter? Secondly, and I think connected to that, a lesson we can learn here from Mount Carmel is that God uses ordinary people to demonstrate His power to do extraordinary things. You know, the the prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, that God's thoughts and God's ways are not our ways. That God is not like us. In fact, as you read through the, the Old Testament, there will be several times where Moses comes to mind, I think there in Exodus chapter 15, with his song. In other places, the writer will ask, who is like you, speaking about God? There is no other being like God. You know, were it up to us, or at least were it up to me, I probably would have chosen a more prominent person than Elijah to go and to issue this challenge on Mount Carmel. To be the conduit through which God showed His great power to His people and even to those who were opposed to Him. But as we said at the beginning of our lesson this this evening, at chapter 17, verse 1, God kind of uses a nobody. He uses what the world would describe as being a powerless person to show His amazing power. And that's the way that God operates oftentimes. He doesn't take the greatest and the grandest and the best known. He takes those who are the least. And through them, He demonstrates His power to the world. Again, who was Elijah? He was really, from a worldly standpoint, He was a nobody from the other side of the Jordan River. He he was, as James wrote, and we're going to turn there for just a moment to James chapter 5. He was, as James says to us here in this passage, a man with a nature like ours. James chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. And, and James brings to our mind 
the illustration or the example of Elijah because of what he has already said going back to verses 14, 15, and 16. This has application to us. So notice what he says at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. You know, sometimes, again, it's easy for us, or at least it is for me, to to read about these characters in the Bible, these real people, and to think they're kind of superheroes. You know, they, they're on a plane up here, and I'm, I'm way down here. You know, they're, how, how can I relate to them? What can I take away from their story as it's recorded in the Bible that will help me? But Elijah was not a superhero. James says he was just a, a, an ordinary guy. He was a man with a nature like ours. He had fears. He had doubts, I'm sure. He sinned, even though we may not read about that. He was a human being. But yet, God used him on this occasion on Mount Carmel and other places to show his great power, to do his great work, to do extraordinary things. And so here in James chapter 5, really, the the immediate application is, again, going back to verses 14 and 16, if Elijah was just like us, and his prayer worked, then our prayer can work if we will be people of faith. Our prayer, the effective prayer of a righteous man, will accomplish much. God used this nobody to demonstrate his power to Ahab, to Israel, to the prophets of Baal. He used this nobody to turn Israel's hearts back to him at least for a time. It wasn't the power of Elijah on display here at Mount Carmel. It was the power of Jehovah God. And since God used an ordinary man like Elijah, since he used a lot of really what we would call ordinary, common people throughout the Bible to do extraordinary things, the the application for us is that God can and God will use us to accomplish his plan. And God can and God will use us if we so allow him to, to show his power to a world that desperately needs it. I'm not suggesting that God is is through us going to shake a mountain or that God is going through us through us to burn up some kind of an offering but God through us can show his great power to a world that really needs to see that and so I would ask you this evening is God using you are you allowing yourself to be used by God through your weakness to show His mighty power. But then thirdly and finally, a lesson I see here in 1 Kings 18, is that experiencing God's power changes people. If you turn back there in 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, did, did you notice the change in the people of Israel from before they saw God's power to after they observed it? Uh, back in verse 21 of this chapter, uh, again, as Elijah uh, asked the question there, you know, how, how long are you going to wait until you make a choice? If the Lord is Baal, or if the Lord is God, you follow Him. If Baal is God, you follow Him. And again, the writer tells us there at the end of that verse, the people did not answer Him a word. There was a deafening silence. 
But then you come to verses 39 and 40, and after they have seen this great display of God's power, here the people saw it, they're falling again on their faces, and their mouths are open. And they're saying, the Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. So they went from being silent about who God is, they didn't even want to answer the question one way or the other, to openly proclaiming. And even though the Bible doesn't tell us here, I think surely shouting, I don't think they were whispering, the Lord, He is God. I think they were shouting, the Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. It's recorded for us there twice in verse 39, maybe for emphasis sake. Now they have come to the stark realization that this false God they've been serving is nothing. He can't do a single thing for them. He can't help them at all in their life. But Jehovah can. He is the one true God of heaven and earth. In a short amount of time, we see a great change in the people of Israel. Well, what about for us today? How do we know that that He, that Jehovah is the only true God? And living God today. Where, where do we see God's power on display? We certainly can look into the creation that God has made. The physical world and the universe. And in His creation, we can, we can see God's power all around us. But we most definitely see God's power in the gospel that He has sent. So I think about what the Apostle Paul wrote along those lines in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 at verse 16, he tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that good news message about Jesus Christ and salvation in Him, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. This book that you and I hold in our hand or maybe a tablet that you have, or it's on your phone in a digital form these days. But the Word of God that we can hold in the palm of our hand, it contains the power of God unto salvation. If we'll read it, and we'll let it work in our life, it will bring about our salvation. You know, when God showed His power on the day of Pentecost, you might remember there in Acts chapter 2, uh, the, the scene there as the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit, as they're speaking in tongues so that all the Jews from around uh, the world, from different nations, can hear in, in their own language. When God showed His power on Pentecost, when Peter preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to that audience there, guess what? It changed 3,000 lives. It changed 3,000 people forever. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 41. So then those who had received His word were baptized. When they had received the gospel, that's the power of God unto salvation. They were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And then you read 42 through 47, and you, you see the great change that happens almost immediately. That instead of devoting themselves continually to going to the synagogue or the temple and hearing the law of Moses being read, now they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now they're learning every day about Jesus Christ. They are now fellowshipping or uh, having uh, communion or sharing with one another as new converts to Jesus Christ. They're remembering the Lord's death and the breaking of bread. They are 
spending their time praying to God through Jesus Christ, His Son. They're sharing all of their possessions with their new brothers and sisters in Christ. They're meeting in their homes, showing hospitality to one another. And they are obviously having a great influence on the city of Jerusalem because verse 47 tells us there that they were praising God, they were having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were getting the gospel message, the power of God into salvation out to their neighborhood. I don't know about you as I was putting this lesson together. I think maybe there are some parallels between Mount Carmel and here on the day of Pentecost. Maybe God's power being displayed in a different way on both occasions, but still the power of God. Not just a physical display of God's power, but here we see that in a spiritual sense, that those people heard the gospel message, they believed it, they obeyed it, and their lives were forever changed. And so let us not think that just because God is not blowing up mountains and God is not consuming sacrifices today that God is asleep at the wheel. God is very much alive, very much active in our world and in our life today. Well, we're just about out of time this evening. But as you think about that, I I don't know everybody here in the audience. I don't know if everybody is a Christian or not. But do you really know the gospel message? If you do, do you really believe that message? Have you obeyed that message? It's always a good time to take advantage of God's power to save us from sin through His Son Jesus Christ and reading about His Son Jesus Christ in the gospel accounts and throughout the New Testament. Experiencing God's power in our life, and especially experiencing God's power to save from sin, changes people. Has God's power through the gospel of Jesus Christ changed you? If it hasn't, I hope you'll seriously think about that. Think about your need for Him. And if you have the opportunity to come to Him. Well, the clock says 8 o'clock. You have listened so well this evening. If you have any comments or questions uh, after we're done, I'll certainly be glad to, to speak to you. But again, thank you for this, this opportunity tonight.